Nodia on your mind report is out, and that means it's time for a new Nodia on your mind podcast. This is Johan Trogmer, and I am very happy to have you here in the studio with me, Victor and Johanna, who have written the latest Nodia on your mind report uh, together with me, which we have called The Hunt for the Right Leverage. Very happy to be here, and uh, what a wonderful studio we have here now. Yeah, and I'm super excited, because this is my first time joining this podcast. It's almost like a party atmosphere. We have a brand new, shiny studio, and it's a luxury to actually meet like this in the COVID times to um, to have a, a talk for a podcast. For sure. So we, we will enjoy. We hope that you listeners will as well. So the title for the new Nodi on your mind report is The Hunt for the Right Leverage. This is a topic that we have thought about for some time. And it's been very, very relevant over the past year, which have been, of course, heavily determined by the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, in that many companies have, at least for a time, had severe difficulties, have been forced to adapt, have been forced to take measures to get through uh, all the impact on demand from all the restrictions social distancing made necessary by the pandemic and because of that balance sheets have been very much in focus Uh, companies have uh, needed to review their balance sheets to ensure that they are in a shape so they can get through the immediate challenges but what we wanted to do when choosing this topic was to look at it as a strategic choice for a company not only as things may go better they may go worse and companies may need to adapt to whatever happens to demand and the economic circumstances they find themselves in but more in a big picture context and and taking the long-term strategic view what capital structure should we have so this is very much about leverage and this is very much about if leverage matters for a company's value and and since we looked at it from that point of view it's pretty exciting that there is, of course, economic theory. In mm-hmm. the academic world, there are some views which have been expressed on what the nature of this issue is. And we kind of wanted to challenge that a little bit, right? Exactly. And if we go back all the way to 1958 and look at the class economic theory that the economists Modigliani and Miller actually presented, they, in their theory that they suggested back then was that the capital structure does not matter for a company's value. And what they actually suggested in the first uh, version of the theorem was that when a firm puts in more depth into uh, a capital structure, the cost of equity will increase. And even though that depth is cheaper than equity, the cost of capital will be the same. And that is actually a result of shareholders demanding higher return due to higher risk. And the average cost of capital, that will not change as the debt needs to be paid first. So in that sense, in that first iteration of the model, it's pretty much a zero-sum game if I understand it correctly. Yes, what it means is basically that leveraging the business should not result in higher market value of the business. Right. And I have to add, of course, now that you bring up the Miller-Modigliano theorem, Johanna, that I've actually met Martin Miller once. Um, It's it's okay to um, admire me later after we're finished with the talk, uh, but I've actually met him when he was alive back in 1995. I'm starting to feel a bit starstruck here by association just from sitting so close to you. I I think you should. Uh, (laughs) He he, he was, of course, a a very, very prominent academic. Um, (laughs) Right, so the Modigliani-Miller theorem 
says that cap structure doesn't matter for the value of a firm, but that is a theoretical construction, right? It's a pretty extreme model. And, and how well does that actually fit with reality? I mean, of course, you can question the theorem because it builds on a lot of different assumptions. And for instance, they assume that the firm does not pay tax, and that's highly unreasonable in reality. So what they actually did was to make a second version of the theorem where they instead said that when you increase the debt in the firm, the cost of equity will still grow, but the average cost of capital will initially decrease. But what happens is what the, when the financial risk in the firm increases, the bankruptcy cost will start to go up. And that will in turn lead to that eventually at some point the cost of capital will increase again. So that means that you have an optimal range, so to say, where you actually can have the lowest possible average cost of capital and at the same time the highest valuation of the future cash flows. Uh, but it's worth men- mentioning that this optimal range, it differs depending on what industry. So it's not just one optimal range for all kinds of uh, firms. So that's actually what they did when they evolved the new yeah. theory. So the model was refined and yeah. there are assumptions which can be challenged um, and it remains a theoretical model. And I guess let's let's just come back to that in a few moments in what it really looks like when we look at some hard data. But before that, can we learn anything from what has happened to leverage and to valuations over history? Does that tell us anything about how this has been perceived? Absolutely. I mean, if we put leverage and valuation, if we put that into the context of history... I mean, first of all, we can see that the past 20 years, it has been a remarkable fall in interest rates and long bond yields in the advanced economies. Um, And at the same time, we have seen rising leverage in North America, in Asia. Uh, But what's really interesting is that it's not been the same in Europe and Nordic. So so, so the European and the Nordic corporates have leverage themselves up less in in this context. Exactly. And if we instead look at the sectors, we can instead see that uh, sectors such as energy, utilities and telecom sectors, they have had a rising leverage there as well. And I, and I guess that that's normal in a sense, because mm. I mean, these sectors are the sectors that are typically typically quite steady. They're, they're probably the ones that are the most most uh, stable uh, in, in terms of economic downturns, mm-hmm. which, which typically then means that they can allow themselves to, to gear up more, s- since inherently there, there is less of a, uh, of a business risk. Yeah. which might make this uh, this higher leverage um, an actual problem. Have, have we seen them change as well? So, so we've seen interest rates falling for a long period of time. Uh, and alongside that, we've seen uh, leverage ratios uh, growing in, in uh, all regions, but, but mostly in Asia and North America. Uh, so, so I think it kind of begs the question then, then Johan, what has happened to valuations? And that is a good question. And obviously because we wanted to look at this whole issue in that context, is there a connection between the value of a company and the leverage or the capital structure that it has? So we looked with great interest over the same time period and we have seen that valuations vary over time uh, with various shocks to the economy and through the economic cycle. But over this pretty long time period, we're talking a couple of decades, the EV to EBITDA 12-month forward multiples, which we think are a good benchmark evaluation to look at, have basically stayed within historical ranges. They varied between five times and eight times EBITDA. So leverage has increased, interest rates are down, but valuation multiples have pretty much stayed within historical ranges. So in other words, one could say that the the, the kind of market rally that we've seen around the world in, in recent years is not simply due to multiple expansion. 
that might has ha, have something to do with it, but but it's mostly the case of an underlying uh, growth in, in in earnings. I think that's a fair way to describe it, and 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 then of course you can say in a two or three year perspective that there has been an effect like that naturally. But if you take the twenty year view here, the really long trend, there has been an, an earnings or a cash flow backing for. Uh, the performance and the equity market values we have seen evolve the way they have. But with all this said, uh, knowing the theory, having looked at the development over the past couple of decades, we wanted to take a deeper look into some real hard data to more in-depth try and see, is there here a convincing connection between leverage, the choice of capital structure for listed companies, and how they are valued? So we put a lot of work into this. We have crunched a, a lot of numbers. And, and, and I think, Victor, you, having been the sort of architect behind this effort of um, trying to um, push our computers to death, how would you describe what we did? I, I think I only needed to use my, my cooling pad for my computer about five or six times during this exercise. And uh, I realized as well that I made the mistake of, of placing my work computer on top of my, my private computer and, and started seeing, you know, not the plastic melting, <laughs> but but it started showing signs of looking a bit different compared to, to the rest of the computer. Um, and the reason for this is, of course, that what, what you mentioned, Yuan, we we've done our best here to analyze uh, a, a big data set and try to cut this data set in, in different ways in order to thoroughly investigate this notion of of leverage and valuations being uh, in some ways connected. So throw some numbers at us. Exactly. How big numbers are we talking here? So, so just to get, get a bit more specific, um, our, our kind of starting universe that we've looked at uh, is uh, over the time of 15 years uh, for for the uh, uh, the equity index uh, stocks 1800 global, which over this time period includes some 3,000 companies. Uh, we've looked at about 20,000 sets of data. And what this means is that we have looked at valuation multiples. So in, in our case, enterprise value to uh, EBTA and leverage multiples. So in this case, using net debt to EBTA. And Using all of these these uh, these uh, observations, we've then um, plotted the connection between uh, leverage and valuation. So basically, putting all of this data into scatter plots, and then started to dig deeper in: can we actually find any type of of uh, relationship that might suggest that a company's leverage affects? how they are valued. And the way that we've done this is to, not to get too much into the nitty-gritties here, but but the way that we've done this is to look at each company relative to their sector peers. So so Johanna mentioned earlier that, that cost of capital or your leverage or your valuation, it, it might very well depend on what sector you, you, you belong to. What might be the, the median valuation in one sector could very well be a, an extreme valuation uh, in another sector. And taking like 20,000 observations over such a long time period, what did the scatter plot look like? At first, nothing. A shotgun blast. Exactly. And what is interesting with this is that over the whole sample, it doesn't really look like there is a connection between valuations and leverage. But it turns out that if you kind of separate uh, separate this sample into uh, three parts, so you could say the, the least leveraged companies, the, the, the most leveraged companies, and then the kind of normally leveraged companies, the companies that are pretty much in line with their sector peers in terms of leverage. What you find is that for this, this kind of middle segment, uh, for the companies that have a leverage ratio in line with their peers, there is no real connection between leverage, uh, leverage and valuation. So, so they are largely independent. So in this range, your choice of capital structure 
does not affect um, at what what multiple you're valued. On the other hand, if we we gear up the leverage bit uh, a bit uh, and and move toward uh, toward the more extreme companies in terms of of leverage, uh, we find that there is a, a quite strong connection. So in in this case, looking at the the twenty percent most leveraged companies in relation to their sector, we actually find that typically a higher leverage rate ratio is rewarded with a higher valuation multiple. So borrow more and get a higher value for your company. Exactly. And and the interesting part is that if you're in this kind of top range, so the top 20% most leveraged companies, this is true. If you're in the top 10%, this is still true. Mm. So, so just judging from that, sure, borrowing more uh, leads to a higher valuation. And much of this, of course, has to do with, with the theory uh, that Johan explained earlier, mm. uh, that if you... If you finance more of your activities via debt, then then of course your your weighted average cost of capital will decrease. And what about the least leveraged companies, the ones with net cash? And this is where things uh, I would say start getting a bit more interesting because in in uh, among the least leveraged companies, there's no clear trend of either being being uh, rewarded with a higher valuation multiple or a lower. But what we can see is that they are typically rewarded or punished but not in between. So what happens is that if you have a significantly lower leverage than your sector peers, you are more likely to either be be valued at a higher multiple or at a lower multiple, but not likely to be valued in range with your peers. And our takeaway from this is simply that depending on the reason for why you have such a strong balance sheet, um, investors will look at it differently. So if you have a strong balance sheet with, let's say, excess cash or just massively underutilized balance sheet base where you could potentially gear up quite a bit and finance more of your activities via debt. Then if you have a reason for this and you are able to communicate this to investors, then you're more likely to actually benefit from it. So in this case, receiving a higher valuation multiple. But if you're sitting on a pile of cash, which you're not using, and investors don't really see the need for it. They, they don't see that you need it to, to cover up for a volatile business. They don't see that you need it for big acquisition down the line. Then you're pretty likely to be to be punished in terms of valuation. Interesting. You don't want to be really at either end, or rather you want to be at either end if you have a strong balance sheet. Um but not in the middle. Exactly, yeah. But this is a static analysis, right? This looks at the valuations relative to each company's peers right now. And and the conclusion can sound a bit strange almost. You should borrow more, you should become more indebted, and you will be rewarded by your investors who will give you a premium valuation over your peers. But this is not the full story, is it? Uh, you're you're absolutely correct. And, and I mean, it's. I guess it would be a bit too simple if the conclusion is simply borrow more and your valuations kind of skyrocket. And, and that's that's as we can, can can see in our data, clearly not the case. Um, because as you mentioned, Yuan, this is a static uh, analysis. And what we've done instead to try to take the try to take time into account to actually look at, okay, so depending on leverage, how, how does it actually turn out for these companies? So what we've done is to to uh, conduct a, a backtest of, of different uh, two different investment strategies where one invests in the uh, top 20% most uh, leveraged companies in relation to their sector, and the other strategy invests in the uh, the 20% least leveraged companies. Uh, in relation to their, their uh, sector. And what we find when we look at the performance of, of these companies, of these two groups of, of companies, is that the most leveraged companies underperform the market significantly and underperform the least leveraged companies even more. Mm. So over time, looking at the actual stock market performance, there is a clear case for not being among the top leveraged companies. 
How much do they underperform? I don't remember the exact figures, but I think it's somewhere along the lines of a 180% difference between the top leverage companies and the least leverage companies over about a 15-year time period. Mm. So where the, the least leverage companies have, have then outperformed the, the uh, heavy leveraged companies by 180%, which is massive. Ouch. Ouch. Correct. And I guess one interesting aspect in, in this, when we started looking at the data, is to, tr- to try to kind of reconcile the conclusions from both the static analysis and then this more dynamic analysis, taking time into account. Because on the one hand, on the static one, we show that you're going to get a higher valuation multiple if you have a higher leverage. But then it turns out that you will have a much worse stock market performance if you're in this group. And to us in the beginning, this didn't really make sense, right? Because Because... It clearly shows two different pictures. And what we thought is that this would suggest uh, that this case of of having a higher valuation based on having a higher leverage um, might very often be a case of of, uh, overvaluation. It might be a case of uh, investors simply underestimating uh, the likelihood of uh, of, uh, financial distress. And I think we can probably all kind of relate to that as human beings, right? That, That you don't tend to think about disasters happening until something happens. We don't really spend much of our days thinking that, oh, I might be struck by lightning or the house could burn down or, or I might be caught up in a car accident. So, so, so this might be a similar kind of behavior we see in the capital markets as well, that you don't really get the punishment from having a high leverage, having a weak balance sheet until when it starts to smell. Exactly. Uh, and uh, I mean... the mixing two other Nobel Prize laureates into this, um, we have from behavioral finance a kind of classical notion of people tend to underestimate the likelihood of unlikely events. Mm. So if there's a one in 100 chance, well, to us, that's zero, right? It won't happen. But it's not. It's still one in 100. And over time, as, as our analysis shows, this low prob- or these low probability events seem to be more probable than than investors tend to uh, to think. And in thematics, we like to schmooze with Nobel laureates, of course. That's <laughs> in the nature of the sort of re- work and research that we do. That's how we operate. So going from this then, Johan, from, from these, uh, I guess, kind of what heavy studies and, and uh, at least to us, conclusions that, that might have a lot of different explanations, trying to kind of make this a bit more concrete, how should you think about this if you are perhaps either an investor, but, but more specifically, if you're running a company? What should be your way of thinking? It's a very good point. And of course, in everything that we write, we try and take that approach. From the reader's perspective, if the reader is a CXO, a very qualified and, and, and senior member of the leadership of a corporate or an institution, what does this mean for my business? And I think if, if you want to make it really simple, which we usually like to do when we can, uh, the, the, the really simple answer is avoid the extremes. Don't have a massively overcapitalized or an exceptionally leveraged balance sheet. Choose a capital structure more in sweet spot somewhere in between. But in our analysis, Johan, we, we've kind of defined these extremes as being the, the top 20% leveraged and the bottom 20% leveraged relative to, to one sector. So in essence, we're talking about 40% of companies here. And we're saying avoid these levels. But evidently, there are a lot of companies having these leverages, either high or or low. 
And, and, and what do they need to think about? What do they need to be aware of? That, that's, that's, again, a very good way of phrasing it because if you think about it, in our analysis, those 20% at the top and 20% at the bottom when it comes to capital structure would kind of be the main audience for our messages from this study. Because it's kind of for their sake that we've tried to look at this and come up with conclusions because they are probably the ones who need to have another think about are we okay with having this leverage that we do or should we reconsider and perhaps opt to do something about it and change it. And and, and the, again, quick answer to that would be that we think they absolutely should reconsider. Um, it doesn't need to be any sort of panic necessarily and it may well be that they could decide to continue to have the capital structure that they do and be happy with it, but they should at least make a conscious decision about it and be aware of what the price might be that they could pay or might already be paying. Um, and, and the message to them would be that if you're on the strong side, if you're in that bottom 20% with the lowest leverage of all these companies, that's not necessarily a bad place to be in. But if you are going to be able to get a reward for being there and having such a strong balance sheet, then you need, as you described before, to be able to present a compelling case for why you need to have such a strong balance sheet. If that compelling case isn't there, you are very, very likely to get punished valuation-wise for being instead perceived of having a, a poor governance and, 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 and more capital than you actually have use for. So you need to get investors on board. Indeed. Yeah. And at the other end of the spectrum, if you take the 20% at the top who have the highest leverage, uh, the message is that while you may enjoy a valuation premium and be here and now, for the time being, valued more highly than your comparable peers, over time it costs you immensely being in that category because the pattern historically is that when there are shocks in the market, when there is a cyclical downturn or some kind of external shock like the global financial crisis or the COVID-19 pandemic, those are the periods when you get punished valuation-wise if you have a very leveraged balance sheet because then it's a bit like, ooh, lightning struck right next to me. I was suddenly made aware that I could theoretically be struck by lightning as well, even if I actually managed to evade it this time. And then you see some sort of probability of financial distress, default, bankruptcy, what have you, getting priced in. And that that's not a small factor. That's something which has an immensely negative impact on, on the value of your equity. And I guess the the inherently uncomfortable thing with having a stretched balance, balance sheet is that it it might work very well for a long period of time. But then at one point, it turns out that everything works until it doesn't. It's like Ernest Hemingway put it, right? Bankruptcy happened to me gradually and then suddenly. Right, yeah. And that's a very good summary of what the problem is, the potential problem is with, with being among the most highly levered companies. So again, the key message is avoid the extremes at either end. Um, and then valuation-wise, you're going to have the best journey. With that, I think we should conclude this talk, right? We've been through what we have done. Um, it's been fun. Already looking forward to our next Nodioni Mind Report. And you, dear listeners, we hope will look forward to that as well. And we will revert soon with our next topic. Thank you for listening this time. Mm-hmm.